0: teach to you tonight. Um, I taught this lesson here several years ago. Matter of fact, I believe I taught this lesson, if I'm not mistaken, in diversified drive. If, if you know where diversified drive is, raise your hand. If, if, look, look at God. Look, there's th- thank y'all for hanging out with us. Yes, yes, that was our very first building here in Loganville on diversified drive And I want to talk to you tonight about last words. Last words. I want to talk to you about the seven statements of Jesus. The seven statements that Jesus made on the cross preceding his death. And I want to talk about the power of last words. The last words that Jesus would speak before he gave his life to save the world. Can we... uh, I'm going to read here in just a moment, but could we just take a moment and could we just lift our voice and could we just pray for just a few minutes here and just let's just ask the Lord to be with us tonight as we study this out. Would you lift your voice from me all over the room? Lord, we love you. We're so thankful, so thankful that you've given your life for us. We're so thankful to feel what we feel in this house tonight. Lord, as we begin to sing about that good father that's perfect in all of his ways, we felt you in this room. Your presence and your power and your authority that's in this house with us tonight. And God, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. We are so privileged to be in your presence and so privileged to be in your house. And Lord, tonight, I ask you that you would touch us through this word. This word tonight, Lord, can heal, can restore, can bring clarity, it can bring maturity. And I ask you, Lord, that you would grow us through this word. Use it, Lord, to affect our lives, to affect our present And to affect our future, Lord, you can do that through your word, for it is right, it is just, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, it is your word. And heaven and earth shall pass away, but not one spot of it shall ever pass away. Lord, it is a bomb, and I pray today that we would be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, let us tonight not only be hearers of your word, but let us be doers of your word also, Lord, and we will be careful to give you praise and glory and honor, for you are good. And you are mighty, and you are majestic, and you are wonderful, God. And you are all-knowing, and you are all-seeing, and you are all present, Lord. And your grace and your mercy, they endureth forever. And your goodness and your mercy follow us all the days of our life. And Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we glorify you, we magnify you. We adore you, and we extol you. In Jesus' name we pray. Would you clap your hands? Give God a shout of praise, and you can be seated. Amen. The New Testament, broken up really into four gospels uh, that we consider to be the main root of uh, the life and times of of Jesus—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These books are written as historical reference and historical fact uh, about the life of Jesus on this planet. The rest of the New Testament is really written for the church. It is, it is uh, we, we start at the book of Acts and we read the history of the church in, beginning in the book of Acts. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the history of Jesus. The book of Acts, that's the history of the church. And then every subsequent book is really written for the church. I've said this many times and I'll say it again. There is no book in your New Testament that's written for the sinner. Every book of the New Testament is really written for the church. The church, how we function, what we do, what we believe, how, how do we behave, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right doctrine, right behavior. That's not, it's not good enough just to believe right, but we must act right as well. Amen? Who cares what you believe if you can't behave well? And so the New Testament is broken up in this way. Most of the New Testament is broken up in this as the apostles are writing to the churches, writing to the church. In Corinth, writing to the church in Philippi, writing to the church in Ephesus, and so on and so forth. As we see the books, Corinthians, Galatians, um, and Philippians, and all these books, this is mostly Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament, and he's writing to the New Testament church, and he's telling them, this is what we believe, this is how we behave, this is how we connect. So the first three books of the New Testament, really the foundation of the life of Jesus and we have so much information about his life, how he walked, how he talked, how much time he spent here. Uh, we we follow him really from his birth, uh, and that's where we celebrate what we call Christmas. Um, but, you know, that's that's the birth of, of Christ, and we kind of keep in touch with him till about the age of 12. At the age of 12, when, when he would be having, uh, in, in Jewish culture, a bar mitzvah, uh, we kind of lose him in history. And we don't hear from him from the age of 12 to the age of 30. We miss 18 years of Jesus' life. 18 years, he just lives in total obscurity. Uh, We know nothing about it. There's no books written about it. There's no information out there about it. 18 years of Jesus' life just drops off the map. We don't hear anything about him. We meet him again when he's 30 years old. When he's 30 years old, he begins his ministry. We know this. He begins it at... A wedding begins his ministry at a wedding and he, he performs a miracle of turning water into wine. And from that moment, he leaves there and goes into the wilderness. He spends 40 days and 40 nights without food and water, a supernatural fast. And from there, he begins to travel and to preach. The Bible tells us that he preached the doctrine that the kingdom is at hand. Along the way, he picks up hundreds of disciples. Hundreds, we know about 12, but Jesus had hundreds of disciples. Uh, We only know of the 12 because those were the ones that he chose himself. Uh, We don't have a lot of record of the ones that just followed him out of their own volition. We we know this because when Jesus tells his disciples that this is my blood, you will drink it, and this is my flesh, you will eat it, that many disciples were offended, and they left him at that time because they were like, this man's crazy, he wants us to drink his blood. And uh, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around the spiritual connotation that Jesus was bringing forth. And so we, we, we see all the miracles of Jesus in these three um, Gospels. Jesus performing miracles. He's raising the dead. He's walking on water. He's opening the blind eyes. He's healing the lame. He's healing the sick. Um, he's doing all manner of, of miracles. And the, the entire time he's doing this, he's preaching. He's telling people the kingdom Of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. He takes three chapters, uh, which in his mind, he wasn't breaking them up into chapters. Uh, Just the writer, Matthew, broke one sermon up into three chapters, and we call it the Sermon on the Mound, where he talked about everything that really you need to know in life. Everything in those three chapters, and if you've been coming to Truth Chapel for uh, a month or so, you've heard me teach several Sundays in a row on the longest lesson. And if you are connected to our podcast, you can go back and listen to all of those lessons on the longest lesson, where Jesus covers all of that. This is all historic information. Matthew is writing as a disciple. Mark is writing as a disciple. Luke is writing as a journalist. Luke was not a disciple. He was a journalist. He, he starts his lesson by saying, I'm writing this by eyewitness account. I saw this, but other people saw this. He, he writes as a journalist. John writes his book 60-something years after the death of Jesus and after he's already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he writes and he adds detail into his book that nobody else adds into their book because John thought it would be important to write those things. He also focuses heavily on the deity of Jesus Christ because he wants us to understand that the God of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. He points these things out. So if you want to have a good context of that, that's in the book of John. As John writes as an old man, and he's already read these other books, and he's seen what is what is what has already been coming out. And, of course, at this time, Paul has already become an apostle. And John writes his book after Paul's an apostle, and after Paul has spent time in different places starting churches all over the world, basically, or all over at least most of Asia. Paul started churches all over most of known Asia at the time, using the roads that the Romans built in order to do so. And he was, John witnessed all of this as he's writing the book of John. So we have all this information about Jesus and it would have been easy for the disciples and the apostles and the, the ones who were making literature at the time to include many things. Uh, almost every almost every disciple and almost every writer of the New Testament, as far as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are concerned, will tell us numerous times that with many words Jesus spoke, and he gave them complete understanding, but they don't tell us what he said. That would have been nice. Um, And even Paul will say, hey, I I saw a man, whether it was in the spirit of the flesh, I can't tell you. But he told me things, like I can't even tell y'all. That would be nice. So we have a lot of information about Jesus We have a lot of context about his life. His death is summed up in just a couple chapters. This time of year, we are celebrating the death of Jesus because we know that salvation comes through his death. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That there must be the shedding of blood. That there has to be a sacrifice. We see this all the way from the book of Genesis all the way to this moment in the New Testament. There's always been a sacrifice. The sacrifices uh, of the Old Testament mirror closely these sacrifices, where we have a goat and a scapegoat, where one is sacrificed, taking the place of the other, and the other is set free into the wilderness. And we'll see this in the story of Jesus and Barabbas. This is the goat and the scapegoat. We connect more with the story of Barabbas than we connect with anybody else in the Calvary story. And as Jesus is 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 dying, Jesus will be crucified for our sins. As Jesus is dying, he says several things. He makes statements in his last few moments. This is this is very um, this is very common. Even even today, if if uh, there is a person on, on death row who's about to be put to death for crimes committed. What we have to understand is that Jesus is not being killed willy-nilly. They're not just like, man, let's kill this man. They are killing Jesus for conceived crimes committed. Jesus was tried. He was convicted of crimes. He's being crucified for the crimes committed. Everybody understand that? They get that? This isn't just a deal where a bunch of guys got together, beat Jesus up, took him out and crucified him. There was a trial. The crimes they, were, they, were, they lied on him. They brought, the Bible says they brought false witness. They lied on Jesus. And Jesus is now being crucified for crimes and sins committed. And so he's, he's, in this moment, he's dying for the crimes committed. And this happens today. We have people who are on death row. They're on death row for crimes committed. In the last few moments of their life, they are allowed several things. They're allowed a last meal. They're allowed uh, maybe some time with family. They're allowed certain moments. Then they're allowed on the bed to be taken away or, you know, in their final moments. They They are allowed last words. Is there anything you'd like to say before this is done? They're allowed last words. Those last words are very important because a lot of people say what they would never say in life in those moments. And 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 those are some of the most honest statements ever made on this planet because they are, in a way, very pure to form. There's no, there's no way out of what they're in. So in the last moments of their life, they speak a true, honest word. In the last moments of their life, we have been privy to people who have spoke very evil and vile things, and then we knew, you know what? it's probably a good thing they're being put to death right now because they're showing us their true character. They're an evil person. But there's other people that have made amends. I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me for the, I know that it can't change my fate, but I am truly sorry. We see a a rawness of life in last words. We see a true character being revealed in last words. It's, It's hard to lie in your last words. It's hard to fake it. In your last words, if you know for sure, these are the last things I'm going to say. Last words are very important. And Jesus makes seven statements. And I want to bring these statements to your attention tonight through teaching. In the book of Luke chapter 23, if you have a Bible, you can go there with me. But if you don't, you can take notes. And I do believe they'll have them on the screen for me. Let's let's follow along in Luke chapter 23 I'll begin reading in verse 32. And there were also two malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not, what they do, Father, forgive them. In Jesus's last moments of his life, the first statement he made during crucifixion. At this point, we know that Jesus has not said very much, but Jesus will begin to make these statements. I want you to understand something: that they're on a hill, and people are people are kind of away from him. It's, it's they're not right up on him, watching him be crucified. They're are a they're a little distance from them. If you've ever seen if you've ever seen pictures of Calvary, it's it's a real place. It's this is not um, Harry Potter. This is a real book. Um, Calvary is a real place. It actually looks like a skull because Calvary means the place of the skull. Um, this this place of, of of the skull. It's not very big. It, it, it's not like a giant mountain. It's just a little hill. But people are standing down on the ground, looking up into the hill. So what Jesus says here is not muttered under his breath. He says with a loud voice for people to hear, forgive them. Forgive them. Jesus is revealing his true character here. That as these men are driving nails in his hands, nail in his feet as they are attaching him to this cross, And as they are crucifying him, his thoughts are, forgive them. Forgive them. Now, I don't know, maybe you uh, are better than uh, the average bear, so to speak. But I don't know if any of us could stand here today and say, you know what? After people lied on me, mistreated me, hurt me, and now they are exacting the revenge and vengeance on me, that I would have the ability to say, Lord, forgive them. Some of us still holding people accountable for stuff they did 20, 30 years ago. They don't even know they did it. We still don't like them. We haven't forgiven them. Jesus showed us his true character in the last moments of his life. The first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. The first words out of his mouth. During crucifixion is, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. They're just fulfilling what they have to fulfill. They're just following orders. They don't really get it. They don't understand that they are crucifying an innocent man. They don't understand that they have now taken the place of the sacrificers that are, they are sacrificing me, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Father, forgive them. The first words, out of Jesus' mouth are words of redemption. Father, forgive them. It may seem trivial today, maybe even elementary. I know uh, that I'm not going to get very deep tonight. But I want you to understand in Jesus' worst moment, he had, a, he had a word of forgiveness on his lips. He's showing us something. He's teaching us. Do you understand what he's teaching us? That in your worst moments, that's when you need to forgive the most. When you are hurt the most is when you need to forgive the most. When you are most wounded is the time to really forgive. When you are most hurt, it's time to forgive. Watch this. Forgive people in the act of them hurting you. Jesus showed us that, hey, I'm not going to wait to ask God to forgive these people. I'm not going to wait 10 years, 30 years, 50 as they're doing it god forgive them they don't they don't really understand what they're doing to me they don't get it this is this is not only forgiveness this is empathy we see empathy here which is something that we forgot about in american culture jesus is not only asking the forgiveness for other people but he sees the empathy of they don't really understand what they're doing they don't understand it they don't get it they they're just soldiers following orders. Roman soldiers crucified Jesus. Jews didn't crucify Jesus. They made it happen, but Rome did it. There was no Jews with a nail and a hammer. These were Roman soldiers skilled at crucifying people. And Jesus, in his worst moment, hurting, bruised, wounded, He had a word of forgiveness on his life. Listen, if you're waiting to be healed to forgive, it's too late because you cannot heal without forgiveness. So if you're waiting to be okay to forgive somebody, you're never going to forgive them. Jesus showed us that while the blood was still pouring, I forgave them. While the wound was still fresh, I forgave them. While the pain was still in my body, I forgave them. As I was dealing with it, I was forgiving them. Jesus, after he he says this, the soldiers uh, mocking him, the Bible says that uh, they parted his raiment and the rulers, they mocked him and there was a, a subscription over his head and in verse 39 of Luke 23 one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, mocking him, saying, "If thou be Christ, save yourself and us." But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, "Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the, we are in the same con- con- condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We did this to ourselves, but this man hath done nothing amiss." In verse forty-two of Luke. Uh, 23 he says and he said unto Jesus lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom and jesus saith unto him verily i say unto thee today thou shalt be with me in paradise first thing he says is forgive them second thing he says is you can be with me he 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 was forgiving and and he was redeeming The first two things out of Jesus' mouth are forgiveness and redemption. Because this is what this is all about. This cross is all about forgiveness and redemption. The first two things that Jesus says on the cross, one is forgiveness and the other is redemption. You're going to be with me. I'm taking you with me. You're going to be healed and whole. You're going to be with me in paradise. This is the worst place you've ever been. But when you die today, you will be in the best place you've ever been. Today. Today. Why? Why? Because Jesus was free to redeem. Jesus was free to redeem him because he had already forgiven. Watch this. Everything that we're about to see is going to come into a process, but it has to start with forgiveness. Jesus was able to redeem this man and able to see him in the light that he needed to see him in, and in order to bring him with him that day into paradise. But he was able to because he had already forgiven. Some of us don't even have the capacity to have good relationships because we haven't forgiven people yet. We We, we have no room for anybody else because we're so full of hatred, bitterness, we got people close to us saying, "Hey, would you remember me?" We can't even see them because we haven't forgiven yet. There can be no redemption without forgiveness. Forgiveness happens first, redemption comes second. If if Jesus had not already said, "Father, forgive them, let them go, let them go," then maybe he would not have been in the place to be able to love on someone else, to see that this man knew who he was. Maybe he would have still been bitter about what had been done to him, the lies, the cheating, the brokenness, the hurt, the wound, still fresh, still feeling it, still every nerve ending in his body, being tortured, but when he was able to forgive, then he was able to redeem. I want you to turn to John 19, 25, and I'm gonna, this is the third thing that Jesus will say. In John 19, beginning in verse 25, it says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, which is John the Beloved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own house. Now, what you have to understand here is that uh, John is writing in third person. Because John the Beloved wrote this book. It's like, a, you, you ever see a, a NFL player talk in third person? John's writing in third person. And he's saying, he he, he considers himself the disciple that Jesus loved. That's his name for himself. He's given, his, he's given himself the name of, I'm the one he loved. Right. However, 12 guys... 12 guys. One betrayed him. Three slept while he prayed. One denounced him. And there was only one at the cross John. The third thing that Jesus will say is he takes care of, he takes care of his earthly responsibility. Because the The Ten Commandments say, honor thy father and thy mother. And he is fulfilling a law here to take care of his mom. He is handling what needs to be handled. He's dealing with earthly things and earthly relationships. There's nothing super spiritual here. This is a practical thing that Jesus is doing. He's taking care of his relationships on earth. He's making sure his mother has someone to take care of her and John will tell us that from that day, I took her in. She became my mom that day. She wasn't without her promise. That day, I stood in. I took care of this earthly concept, this earthly relationship. Jesus took care of that in that moment. Let me, let me go back to the beginning now and, 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 and connect this for you. If you cannot forgive people, You cannot take care of earthly things. There there is a practical connection of relationships that me and you struggle to handle on a day-to-day basis because we're not able to forgive them that have hurt us. There are people sitting in this room today, you have stressed relationships with your mother, stressed relationships with your father, stressed relationships with your husband, stressed relationships with your wife. Every earthly relationship you have is stressed out and it can be led back to a root of unforgiveness. Anybody want to talk back to me on a Wednesday night? Everything that happens, these first three things that Jesus says are uniquely connected to his forgiveness. He was able to deal with the thief, and he was able to deal with his mother because he had already cleaned his spiritual palate, so to speak. He had let forgiveness reign. Forgiveness first. Forgiveness first. Forgiveness first. After Jesus had took care of his mother and made sure that she had a place, verse 28 of the same, chap, of same chapter, John 19, Verse 28, the same chapter. After this, after this happened, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture was fulfilled, said, I thirst. This is a look into his humanity. It was a a reminder that, that this was a man, that this was flesh. It was a connection to him that I have earthly needs. His humanity comes out in this moment when he just admits I'm I'm thirsty And they set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it onto hyssop and put it to his mouth <laughs> while while Jesus is connecting this thing just just, I'm thirsty, it's just, I'm, I've, I've lost probably up now two pints of blood, maybe maybe more. I'm bleeding out, and um, if you know anything about people losing a, a large quantity of blood, one of the first things that happens is they become cold and they get very thirsty, almost to the point of they cannot drink enough water. And really it's because of the electrolyte contents leaving your body with the blood and he's thirsty he's thirsty and instead of water they give him vinegar and they filled that sponge with vinegar and they put it on a hyssop branch this is this is really it, it if you just do a word search in your phone or or your Bible right there that you have just do a word search of, of hyssop Just just type in hyssop branch, and you're going to see one of the first things that come up is an Old Testament reference that the Levitical priest would use a hyssop branch to dip in the blood when the priest would go underneath the veil into the Holy of Holies once a year. He would have in his hand from the altar, he would have in his hand from the altar a small bowl of the blood of the sacrifice from the altar. After he would get into the Holy of Holies, if God didn't kill him on point, he would take a hyssop branch and he would dip that hyssop branch in the the bowl of blood and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He would just sprinkle it on the mercy seat so that when God looked down upon the sins of the people, he could not see the sins he could not see the manna. He could not see the law. And he could not see Aaron's rub that Aaron's rod that butted, which represents the law that condemns us, the manna for their mur- murmuring, and Aaron's rod because they fight for who's gonna lead them. They're too worried about politics. Anybody want to talk about it? He 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 flicks the blood on the mercy seat when God comes into the holy place and looks down. He can't see the problems of the people. He can only see the blood. This is connected to Passover in Egypt. Every house that's covered by blood, the death angel, when he comes over the house, he sees the blood, he moves on. When God comes down, he sees the blood. It's it's The blood is carried by a hyssop branch. And as he backs out of the holy place, he sprinkles blood on the curtain. And as he's backing out, he sprinkles blood on the candlesticks. And the table and the showbread. And when he comes out, he sprinkles blood on the door. And when he comes back, he sprinkles blood on the laver. And then he sprinkles blood on the altar. And then he sprinkles blood on the outer court. And then he turns around and the people are excited because he's alive. And he says, Y'all stand still. And he sprinkles blood on the people. And then when he's doing all that, he sprinkles blood on himself, all with the hyssop branch. Because when Jesus said, I thirst, it put in the sequence the hyssop branch being applied to the sacrifice. There's a, there, there's a ton of things I can go with here with the vinegar and the, the, the spike nerd and, 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 and it's all going to connect all throughout the, the whole entire Old Testament. You're going to see that this all connects is that this is a fulfillment of sacrificial law. What, what Jesus is, after Jesus forgives, Redeems, handles his earthly stuff. His mom takes care of her. Now he's about to start fulfilling prophecy. He's about to start bringing this all to a head. The next three, the next three, the first three are all about forgiveness, redemption, and relationship. His the earthly man. The next three are all about prophecy. I thirst was more than just I'm thirsty. That's just a fleshly thing. It's just an earthly thing. I'm I'm a man. And I've lost a lot of blood and I'm thirsty. But when they dip that hyssop branch in the vinegar and they put it on him, we see a Levitical moment. When he dipped that hyssop branch in and they put that hyssop branch to his mouth, there is a connection, an Old Testament sacrificial connection, that old tabernacle sitting in the desert somewhere. There's a connection. It's a prophetic connection. It don't stop there. It don't stop there. After they did this, the sixth hour will come. This is Mark 15 and 33. Mark 15 and 33, after the sixth hour was come, this is noon. The sixth hour of the Jewish day is noon. Their their day begins at 6 a.m. The sixth hour of the day is noontime. Darkness comes over the whole land to the ninth hour. And At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, which is being interpreted my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me wow my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me if you're a Jew and you're standing looking up at the cross and Jesus says with a loud voice my God, my God why hast thou forsaken me if he says that And you're a Jew and you're standing there, you immediately, because you've been trained your whole life, you've been been taught a song your whole life. This is the beginning of one of your hymns. You know what hymn it is? Psalms 22. Take me there, Brother Kingston. Psalms 22. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalms 22. Guess how Psalms 22 starts. This is a psalm that every Jew would have known standing in front of Jesus that day. Here's how it starts. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every Jew, when Jesus says, My so the first three are about heaven and heaven and earth, but these next three are about prophecy. Jesus is about to reveal to them the guy who's hanging on this cross is the guy David was talking about. Because David says, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season am not silent, but thou art holy, and thou inhabitest the praises of Israel. We know that scripture, don't we? Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded, but I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, and despise of the people. All they that see me laugh to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord. He, he, He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. That sounds familiar. It sounds like the people saying, you trust in God. Will he save you? But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have come past me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potshirt, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Hey! If you're a Jew and you hear him say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can't help but sing the rest of this song. This is a song. And every Jew standing there knows it. And when they get to that part, they pierce my hands and feet. They're like, hold up. They pierce my hands and feet. They're, watching, they're looking at a man whose hands are pierced, whose feet is pierced. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. Oh, my goodness. If you can't see that the God that David's talking about in Psalms 22 is the Jesus hanging on that cross, you just don't want to see it. This, this, as Jesus is saying, his last words are, check me out, I'm the God of Psalms 22. But be not far from me, O Lord, O oh my strength. Haste thee to help me deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, for the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye seed of Israel. He's still talking to them. He's still talking to the people are watching him he goes on to say in verse 28 for the kingdom is the lord's and he is the governor among the nations and they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship all they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none can keep alive his own soul a seed shall serve him he it shall be accounted to the lord for a generation they shall come they shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this who's about to be born The church. (laughs) They shall come. They shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. Something's about to happen. Uh, He says, he sings a song. He sings a song. Let me take you back to Luke 23. Because I got to get to that third one of prophecy. Luke 23 uh, verse 44. Luke 23:44, this is the sixth thing that he says, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth unto the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus hath cried with a loud voice, he said, "Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit." And when he had said that, he gave up the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Every Jew standing there that day, they recognize that. That's a prayer that they pray. They get it from the book of Psalms, chapter 31. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Psalms, chapter 31. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow thy ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for an house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me. For thou art my strength into thine hand. I commit my spirit Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord of truth. Go home tonight and just Google this. Into thine hand, I commit my spirit. Just type type in Jewish culture and into thine hand, I commit my spirit. This is where we get our prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Lord, my soul to keep. Because the Jews believe that when you sleep, your soul leaves your body. So the Jews take Psalms 31, and every Jew, before they lay down to sleep at night, especially during this time, and today would it be an Orthodox Jew. But in the time that Jesus said this, every Jew did this. Every Jew had been trained from a child that when they would lay to sleep, it was customary for them to quote Psalms 31. They would quote, Lord, into thine hands I commit my spirit. I give myself to you. Keep me as I sleep. Jesus said a bedtime lullaby, he quoted Psalms 31, Lord, into thine hands, I commit my spirit. Every Jew standing there who heard him say that realized he is saying his bedtime prayers. He must expect to wake up. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus said a prayer not for death. He said a prayer for sleep. <laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Every Jew sitting there knew he was saying a prayer that you say when you lay down and you ask the Lord to keep you when, so you can get up. When he said that, every Jew listening, they knew it immediately. They had been trained. This is a customary thing for them. Look it up. You ain't got to believe me. Just Google it. It is a customary thing for them that they believe that when they sleep, their soul leaves their body. So they say, Lord, protect my soul so that when I wake, my soul will be back in me. And hallelujah. When Jesus woke up, he said, hey, look, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. But my spirit shall return. My spirit shall return. Yeah. Everybody listening was probably looking at each other like, can you believe this? Even the Roman soldier will remove his helmet and say, surely, surely, surely. This was the son of God. This was the king of the Jews. Surely he was who he said he was. And the last thing that Jesus said in my closing, the last thing that he said is in John 19, in verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished it is finished. It's over. It's done. If you look this up that word finished that word finished there in in John chapter 19 it is it is more than just it is It is more than just a word of like completeness. It is it's, it's, it's more than just like it's over. But it's it's kinda like when a director closes the the, the, the thing and says cut. It's the word that is used here is teleo. Uh, and it it's more about a performance than it is. It, if you look it up, you'll see that it's it's about performance, a completion to fulfill. It's more about prophecy than it is about it's done. He wasn't saying it is finished. He was saying in scene. wasn't saying, this is over, end of it. He was just saying, in this scene, this has been fulfilled. This part of it has been fulfilled. There's a fulfillment here, in scene. Yeah. It is to carry out the contents of a command. It also means paid. It is paid. Jesus Paid it all. In the word, in, in, in this context, it is end scene, terminate, this part of it's over. I have fulfilled it up to this point. And it also means I've paid the toll. The word literally connects to the word toll, T-O-L-L. We, we pay a toll to go across a bridge or we pay a toll to be on a certain road. He said, "It the word like an indirect tax is what the word refers to here in this setting. Like a toll, like I've paid the toll. I've paid the tax. I've I, The tax on the goods, I took care of. I paid your toll so you could get on that straight and narrow path. That you could never get on. I ended the scene. I didn't end the movie. I just ended the scene. Act two is about to start. Recording starts in three days. Act two will begin. There's a new season coming. <laughs> season two is about to happen. I I I finished this part of it. I fulfilled that. This is the fulfillment, Lord. If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He said this, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. It was a fulfillment. Jesus, the last thing that Jesus said is, I paid it. It's done. I fulfilled this. The tax has been paid. In scene. Come on. Whew, we got through that. And it's over. But it's just really beginning. It's just a cut. It's just the end scene. It's just this season's over. Get ready. There's a new season coming. And you're not going to be able to kill him in this next season. He will live forevermore in this next season. Matter of fact, you can live through him in the next season. In the next season coming, his spirit shall come and dwell among men. And in 1 Corinthians, he'll tell us, come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing. So I shall be your God, and you shall be my people, and I will walk in you. Yes, sir. Anytime before that, he said, I will walk with you. Oh, no. <laughs> Listen, in this scene, he told Abraham, I'll walk with you. But in this scene, he tells us he'll walk in us. In this scene, he says, I'll walk by your side. But in this scene, he says, I shall possess you. I will possess you and I will order the steps of a righteous man because I'll walk in you. I shall be your God and ye shall be my people because I fulfilled what needed to happen out of this scene into this scene. I paid the toll so that God would not only be with you but would be in you yes the toll paid the custom the purpose the prophecy fulfilled the custom paid the tax paid Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain He washed me white as snow. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. When he walked away from that place that day, everybody in the hearing knew that he was the God of the Old Testament. That David had wrote about this moment. That hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment, in their own literature, they literally had this already written out. Why do you think Pharisees buried him? And Sadducees washed his hair with oil. Why do you think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried him with a hundred pounds of? of myrrh and aloes. Probably because they heard their own scriptures that they live by being repeated on that cross, watching it happen, seeing it all play out. What you need to know tonight that in his last moments, his last words, his last words are enough. I know he said many things. But the last thing he said is enough. If all he said was seven things, we'd have forgiveness, we'd have redemption, we'd have our families taken care of, we'd know that he is the Yahweh, the I am, the Y-H-W-H, the name that cannot be pronounced until you add an A for Adonai and an E for Elohim, which is the word me and you say, Yahweh. We would know all of that just by the last things he said. The first things he says are beautiful, but the last things he says are redeeming. If all we had was his last words, it would be enough to know we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are set apart. We are taken care of. He loves us. If all we had was his last words, we would know that the God of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. And if we had his last words, we would know that there's nothing that me and you have ever done that he hasn't already paid for. There's no season of our life that he can't step in and say, end scene. We're gonna end this chapter right here, baby, but you got a new chapter coming. If all we had was his last words, we got enough words. If all we had was his last words, we have enough words. Would you stand with me tonight? I pray this word was an encouragement to you today. Thank you again for tuning in to Truth Chapel's podcast. If you have not yet, please take a moment and leave us a quick review. God bless and have a great rest of your day.